Hello, and welcome to Deconstruct. My name is Fitzgerald Pucci. There are many myths in American society that are causing us to act against our own interests, and Deconstruct's goal is to shed light and give clarity on these myths. Together, we'll trace the origins of the myths our society has forgotten the history of. We'll follow the money trail of the people and institutions who benefit from these myths, and we'll study together how each myth changed the way our world works. Our goal is to equip a listener with a multitude of lenses to see each myth with a fresh perspective and give them the power to reach their own conclusions. Today, we're going to be looking at the myth of infinite growth, an economic system that feels as though it's been in American society forever, but really only has a context and history up to the past 75 years of American life. We'll explore how dangerous this idea has become, the particular corporations that have taken advantage of it, and the damage they have caused, those who first created the idea, and the way that it has morphed into something deeply damaging in the past seven decades. The idea of infinite capital growth hasn't been around very long at all. The initial argument for an infinite system has only surfaced in the past 75 years or so. Beforehand, there were decades of silence about growth models. If anyone spoke, it was to note how little data there actually was to articulate any semblance of a point on the topic. So how do we get from there to the point where the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, goes on national television to suggest that the elderly of his state are willing to die to preserve the American economy. When did we get to such a cartoonish display of heinousness? In the 50s, economists believed in limits. From 1950 to 1955, experts in the field of economics were asked to present the research and information they had regarding growth as a theory. The problem was, there wasn't any. They were pushed to compile resources together. But each of the theorists, like Moses Abramovitz, the man who was originally asked to write the state of the field essay on growth, concluded that any semblance of a field made of modern economists about the topic was fragmented and inconclusive. There wasn't an existing argument for growth. The subject hadn't been touched upon for a century. Some of the big economic names of the 18th and 19th centuries, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, and David Ricardo, were deeply interested in growth at the time of their studies, but recognized that it was limited to the natural resources of the earth. They broke it down into three observations. One, there's a limited supply of land. Two, all economic processes required materials which came from the land. And three, what we got from the land was subject to the property of diminishing returns. Each extra step in the process of refinement gave us less and less back. 
So the entire conversation up until the really mid-1900s was dominated by a take that supported the idea of respecting the boundaries of the earth. But the myth of infinite growth came along eventually, and there was one man who convinced us of it. We can trace it all the way back to an American economist named Robert Solo. Solo devised a model of economic growth that differed vastly from Smith, Ricardo, and Stuart Mill. It didn't take land into account as a finite resource. He came up with two articles, one in 1955 and one in 1957, which took advantage of the abundant resources available after World War II to propose the idea of infinite and aggressive growth. He simplified the components and objects of his theory, which allowed for the oil and minerals and farmland he was describing to be taken account as replaceable goods, as things no different than money or land to exchange. Now, this model overlooked an overwhelmingly blatant issue. There was nothing to take into account about climate change. We know now that the infinite burning and extraction of these resources has made our planet unbelievably unhealthy. It's made us susceptible to extreme weather conditions that occur more frequently and pushed our window of habitable living climate conditions to its absolute brink. In order for the next generation of Floridians to survive old age and remain in their homes, they're gonna need to grow gills. I'm going to call it as it is. This model gave the incentive for profit-hungry moguls and corporate supervillains to get really sloppy with their thinking and screw uncountable numbers of life forms over in the process. A team from MIT in 1982 formulated the perfect diss track in response, an economic report titled The Limits to Growth. It stated loud and clear that our planet would not be able to carry the burden created by an infinite model of extraction. The model Solo used wasn't purposefully orchestrated to give corporate supervillains the opportunity to cannibalize the planet to line their bank accounts. He wanted to think about the ways resources would evolve and adapt over time, and change in accordance with the growth proposed. Unfortunately, his focus was on the question of whether or not we had enough resources to make goods, period. If one looks at the total amount of tungsten available to make specialized smartphone parts, and the total mass of aluminum in the world to make the bodies for Macs, we would have all the Macs and all the smartphones that we could need for a very long time. The process of creating these, though, releases deeply toxic components into the air, land, and water. Make enough smartphones, make enough Macs, and we'll produce enough of these toxic byproducts to corrode and kill our planet before we ever come close to running out of resources. My man Solo never expected the economic process he essentially greenlit to pose a threat to the extinction of all humanity just two generations afterwards.
He didn't really think that his work would be used to justify the cannibal business practices that would come. There's a lot of really great information about this process of growth, threat, and denial in Episode 9, Individual Guilt in the Climate Crisis. I highly recommend taking a moment to check it out when you get the chance for some meaningful context as to what company specifically profited. The businesses that had the most to make by executing a half-baked interpretation of Solo's growth model were also the industries that caused the most damage. War, fossil fuels, commercial agriculture, pharmaceuticals, every business interest, every stock dollar turned from profit from the reckless application of these philosophies has blame in creating the calamity we are in. They are far more responsible for the future Florida babies having to grow gills than any individual working class person is. So here we are, two generations afterwards, roughly 70 years after the first discussions of growth took place. Two generations later, and these bloodthirsty corporations brought our world to the brink of utter devastation. How is it possible for corporations running with Solo's idea to bungle it so damn badly? What does it mean for our ability to change this model for the better? Not only is it deeply fulfilling to make podcasts that bring new perspectives on society to folks, with Anchor, it's incredibly simple. It's a free podcast host with tons of creation tools that help make cut and polished podcasts straight from your phone or computer. Anchor makes podcasting simple. They distribute your work to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other major platform distributors. They come with a built-in advertising system so you can make money without a minimum listenership. It's got everything you need to make a fantastic podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Can we do such a thing? First and foremost, it's very powerful to recognize how this idea is still in a juvenile state of development. The infinite growth model is young, and it's confused, like a dizzy toddler in the middle of projectile vomiting over itself. It's a young idea, and when we recognize how young it is, we recognize how susceptible to social change it also is. If we break the myth that this model is the end-all be-all, if we question the illusion of its timeless nature, society has a pretty darn good shot at rejecting it and all the dangerous nonsense it encapsulates. We just saw one of the biggest interruptions imaginable to this vomiting toddler. COVID. The pandemic. During the pandemic in China, air pollution levels took a massive drop of almost 40% in fine particles and nitrogen dioxide levels. The smog began to lift, and the skies of Beijing actually started clearing in the pausing of the smokestacks in industrial facilities. Similar patterns happened in Los Angeles and many other cities. Photos of a clear LA skyline began to surface during the beginning of the lockdown. 
the vice-like death grip that the modern market had over the environment, over the mental strain of our productivity, over our ravenous consumer cycle, it all eased up. For a hot second, wildlife had it pretty good. But the and the bat guano craziness of the pandemic actually caused the corporate world to hit the pause button on its flabbergastingly destructive practices. The environmental conditions began to heal themselves in the absence of human activity. Here is where we see the platform for an alternative means of economic structure that takes a note of the clear skies and pays attention to the importance of natural resources and healthy land that's solo missed. This is where the idea of degrowth comes into the picture. Degrowth is what challenges the belief that capitalism needs to expand forever and leave a planetary wake of destruction. Degrowth demands that our former economic models be radically changed into ones that let us grow smaller and heal. It doesn't give us the same lucrative mountain of human skulls ending that our pre-pandemic model brought us. It gives us that chilled out four-day work week, sipping kombucha in a hammock and reading David Foster Wallace vibe that the world could really use a little more of right now. It bites off a chunk of the aspect of productivity. You know, the same aspect that's making Amazon employees pee in bottles in fear of losing their jobs. The same one that's turning all of its participants into brittle little robocops. Yeah, it might cost Jeff Bezos a space yacht, but to hell with him. To hell with Jeff Bezos, and to hell with his stupid space yacht. We need a planet more than he needs to fulfill his Star Wars cosplay fantasies. So what is degrowth? Degrowth redirects the core purpose of economy towards striking a natural balance and healing the wounds of the earth inflicted by these 70 years of infinite growth. It calls for a new, restorative form of society. It calls for a clever new technology to bring our sustainable infrastructure to a whole other level. Windmills, ocean turbines, solar panels, geothermal heat wells, carbon sequestration devices. There's a lot of really cool and wacky technology that's finding legitimate ways to clean up the mess these corporations made. Degrowth is all about finding the way for our economic system to respect the boundaries of the Earth's finite resources. Boundaries. It's the difference between the jerk at the bar five inches away from you breathing flammable whiskey breath down your neck and the guy that asks if you'd like to have a conversation together in the fresh air. It respects boundaries. Degrowth calls for an economy and society that sustains the natural balance of life. It calls on us to reduce the pointless junk we consume and let go of the Western paradigm of development that's fueled so many different empires. It tells us to throw our solo out the window. 
It calls for an end to the authoritarian states suffocating the political power dynamic, and it demands democratic decision-making power to extend to its people. Free elections, power to the people, and an end to fascist ideology. It calls for us to redesign everything towards sufficiency, of having enough together rather than giving a few ultra-rich jerks a space yacht and leaving the rest to die. And note to the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, if by some miracle you haven't been stripped of your power and ousted out of Texas by a torch and pitchfork, it means not demanding blood sacrifices. No doubt Jones' blood altered tomfoolery for you. I still can't believe he said that. Sheesh. Degrowth might as well, in some part, be demanding Dan Patrick's resignation. It has no space for any sort of political speech like that, which is just deeply destructive to the nature our society is trying to preserve. Additionally, degrowth means opening up a decentralized, localized system of economies and creating connections that the corporate monoliths have been starving us for for the past uh, 70 years or so. And degrowth is a really beautiful idea. It creates the space for interconnectedness, solidarity with our neighbors and global kin and a release of the extractive and oppressive situations that had us all feeling like dog butts before the pandemic. If we can pull it off, it's gonna be great. But we cannot treat it like a fever dream. It's gotta be urgent. 19 days ago, pollution levels in China returned to almost the exact same level they were before coronavirus happened. The virus is still ravaging the world, and it's still hitting the vulnerable and marginalized communities of our world the hardest. America is on track to follow through in a similar way, which means we've got to get real and urgent about implementing these ideas. We cannot let this slip to the back of the news cycle. The climate crisis is happening right now, and it's coming for the impoverished masses first. It's hit Puerto Rico, it's hit Australia, it's hit the Amazon rainforest, and it's not stopping until we are able to institutionally do what COVID did for a month. But we gotta do it permanently. We've got to shut our businesses down. We've gotta put our wildest imaginations to the forefront of this fight. As we speak, there are billionaires testing rockets. They're testing rockets because they know how bad it's going to get. They're the ones who made it happen, and they're coming up with every trick they can to abandon ship and hop a ticket to Mars before they have to face the monster they made. We can't let them get away with us. Not only is degrowth going to chill us out significantly, it's going to be our salvation if we make it happen. Thanks a ton for making it all the way to the end of today's episode of Deconstruct. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that you gained a new sense of clarity and perspective about today's myth. 
If you liked the podcast, please have a conversation about it with your friends. Talk to your buds about it. One of the most powerful things that we are capable of doing is having conversations with each other. And word of mouth goes a long way in helping build a little baby podcast like ours. If you head over to our link tree if you haven't already, you'll be able to follow us on all of our social media and get us on all of our podcast distributors. The link for that is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash deconstruct podcast. Every like, every follow, and every bit of communication helps us move along. If you have any ideas for podcast episodes that you want to bring, if you have any questions or reflections about what you hear and feel in the episodes, feel free to shoot us a DM. We'll always be around to hold the space for conversation to help you grow. I wish you joy. I wish you safety. I wish you peace. I wish you health. Stay cool, stay sharp, and stay beautiful. I'm Fitzgerald Pucci, and this is Deconstruct. Deconstruct.